Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast that you would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. And we don't <laughs> do we have anything. I don't even know if we have anything better to do or not. Um, I I probably do, but I don't feel like doing it. I'm, I ate a, like half a pumpkin pie tonight. Oh, wow. I had for dinner a bunch of shell pasta with ricotta and sauce and it was pretty good but i know i'm gonna feel cruddy well i was i was trying to turn over a new leaf today but it didn't last very long yeah i know i feel your pain i went to the grocery store and i was gonna get stuff to make salads with and forgot that and i forgot to get cat food too Uh oh i always think pumpkin pie is kind of healthy yes it might be wrong though it's healthy yeah, it's definitely healthy. Well, it's got pumpkin. Pumpkin's right. probably it's good, good for, for you. It's good for you. Okay, yes. anyways, so do you have an update? Yeah, in this episode, we have the second half of the Topless Coffee Shop. Woo! Too, so that's exciting. But yes, first I have an update, and I may, if I sound a little ranty, it's... Because you it always on, are. Yeah, that, and also I've been watching nonstop cable news for <laughs> like a month. Join the club. And you know how ranty everybody gets. They're always, so. Yeah, I was thinking that tonight that all the people on MSNBC are always yelling at yeah, us. Yeah, I'm like, why, especially Chris Hayes, I'm like, why is he yelling at me? I didn't do that shit. Why, what's he yelling at Rachel me for? Chris and Rachel are always yeah. lecturing me. I know. Anyway. But anyway. Okay, I do have and, and by the way, I don't watch it by choice, even though I don't I don't disagree with them. But mom and dad are glued yes. to it all the time. In any case, we should anyway. probably... This is an update to episode 8 Ooh. from January of 2017. It just seems long so long ago. time ago. ago. And that was our Maura Murray and Stuff episode. Ah, Maura. And She's been a... found. No, sorry. <laughs> We found her. That's right. We went and we wandered around those woods, much to the dismay of the person who owns them. <laughs> but as everyone on the internet knows, Maura Marie disappeared after she crashed her car on Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire, on February 9th, 2004. Maura's family has kept a blue ribbon tied around a tree at the site for the last 16 years. The property owners plan to cut down the tree next year, and also last summer there was a bill before the New Hampshire legislature to ban roadside memorials, which basically means that road crews would take them down when they came across them. It doesn't mean like people would like get shot as they're putting them up or anything like mm. that. At the time, last summer, Murray's family started the Mora's Blue Ribbon Campaign, which has three goals. To erect a New Hampshire historical marker recognizing her disappearance hmm. to protect her blue ribbon uh. and to preserve the blue ribbon tree. Hmm. The biggest news out of that is that her family has petitioned for a state highway historical marker to be installed at the spot where she vanished. State Rep. Deborah D. Simone of Atkinson, New Hampshire, which, by the way, is nowhere near Haverhill, New Hampshire, though it is near Haverhill, Massachusetts. Hmm coincidentally, submitted an application for the marker on October 22nd to the New Hampshire Division of Historical Resources in Concord, New Hampshire, the capital. Quote, The disappearance of Maura Murray is a historical event in New Hampshire. Really? I mean, I'm sorry. We're going to get to that. Definitely get to that. And unequivocally meets the criteria for a marker set forth by law, said D. Simone. I strongly urge Mr. Ben Wilson, 
DHR director to swiftly recognize the historical significance of Moore's disappearance with the approval and installation of a historical marker. Murray's sister Julie told the Littleton Courier in October, quote, This location has a lot of symbolism. Removing the tree is essentially erasing history, and I can't let that happen. I don't have a grave. I don't have ashes. I have a ribbon on a tree. More than 100 pages of documentation have been submitted by DeSimone as part of the Maura Murray Blue Ribbon campaign. One big missing piece of all this is that none of the news coverage I read on it, most of which, as usual, is drawn from the same source with no independent reporting. None of it says exactly why they're cutting down the tree. No one apparently made an attempt to talk to the property owners where the tree is. If they did and the people didn't want to talk, the journalists who have written these stories haven't said so in their stories. The issue has been danced around that maybe they're fed up with the stream of internet obsessives who flock to the property and wander their woods looking for the clue that's going to help them solve the Mora case. And I say it's been danced around because, for instance, the Littleton Courier wrote, quote, D. Simone discussed the property owner's exasperation with frequent tourist stops at the location of Murray's disappearance. D. Simone said, My goal is to give some form of closure to both sides. I cannot even imagine the pain of the Murray family. On the other side, I cannot imagine the frustration, but the pain is much worse. Ooh. And I'd just like to add here, this is Maureen, I don't want to diminish the Murray's pain, but it's not their property. And whose pain is greater isn't the issue. Many, 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 many people have had tragedies just as bad as the Murrays have. The differences they haven't had as big an internet following. Just because this has become an internet sensation, and I don't mean to sound glib, but that's basically what it is, it doesn't mean that the rest of the world is obligated to acquiesce to it. De Simone said that while the tree may be on private property, the New Hampshire Department of Transportation owns a 15-foot easement on each side of the center line of Route 112, and uh, road lanes are generally, like, one lane is generally 12 feet, so that means they would have about three feet off the pavement right away. But I mm-hmm. also believe you can't put anything that close to the road in that three feet. I don't know if Ms. Simone. No, that seems like that would be unsafe. I, yeah, I don't know if she, if she um, researched road law, but as a reporter and editor for small-town northern New England newspapers for... Almost four decades, I can tell you that the stuff isn't supposed to go in that area. Murray went to West Point before transferring to UMass, before she disappeared, and getting in on the act is West Point Military Academy history professor Robert McDonald, who submitted a letter supporting the marker. The Littleton Courier article from October that I quoted and supporters of the historical marker say that McDonald said... Murray's disappearance is ranked alongside Amelia Earhart as one of the 14 most famous missing persons in American history. Actually, I read his letter, and what he said is that it, <laughs> and what he said is that it has been ranked among one of the most 14 missing person uh. cases. And if you don't think there's a difference, the difference is he's not ranking it, he's saying someone else has. I tried to click on the link in the PDF of his letter. It was a dead link. So I googled top 14 missing persons in American history, and the list is by Indeed, which is one of those clickbait websites that churns out reams and reams of web articles with lists, and they're based on search engine optimization. The whole point is to get clicks for advertisers by turning out 
so-called articles that have things that are popular on the internet so that people will read the article. So it kind of feeds itself. It begins with Amelia Earhart, and it also has D.B. Cooper, and it does have Maura Murray and Natalie Holloway and a handful of other women made famous during the past couple decades of the internet age. If we put on our critical thinking hats... I think we can all discern that Mm. just because something is popular on the internet and a driver of internet obsession doesn't make it historically significant. And McDonald, in his letter, goes into, you know, how she disappeared right like four days after Facebook started and she was like one of the first big social media internet sensation true crime case things and blah blah blah. So he's trying to derive some historical significance, and I'll get to that in a bit, but Dee Simone, the state rep, said that she isn't sure how long the process to get the historical marker will take. It's going to take as long as it will take, she said. I am on the phone with people every day, and she told that to the Littleton Mm. Courier. So it's quite, um, despite the pandemic and everything else, it's quite an issue with her. The Department of Historical Resources has stringent marker guidelines. The plaques are limited to no more than 14 lines of text with a maximum 45 spaces per line. According to the DHR website, any individual may propose a marker to commemorate significant New Hampshire places, persons, or events by submitting a request along with a petition signed by 20 New Hampshire residents. The petition requesting a marker for Maura Murray has been signed by 680 New Hampshire residents and about 3,000 people altogether because, again, internet obsession. That's according to moramissing.org. The number of signatures, not the side about it being an internet obsession. The request includes draft marker text voted on by 724 supporters and letters of support from the Murray family. And here's the draft text of the marker. And I'd just like to add, if they do get a marker, I hope they also get an editor for their punctuation issues. (laughs) But anyway, here's what it says. Maura Murray disappearance. On the evening of February 9th, 2004... 21-year-old Maura Murray disappeared without a trace, which is usually um, how people disappear. After her car crashed near this location, her whereabouts remain unknown. Maura's disappearance is one of the most followed missing person cases in the world, being compared to Amelia Earhart. Described as the first Mm. crime mystery of the social media age, her story draws thousands to this location yearly. Maura was a standout student athlete from Hanson, Mass., who loved hiking the White Mountains with her father, Fred, who dedicated his life to searching for her, resolutely saying, we're coming for you, kid. So that's Mm. the wording, and we'll get to that in a minute. Coinciding with the property owners saying they're going to cut down the tree, as I mentioned at the beginning of this update, a bill that bans all roadside memorials, not historical markers, just the memorials that people put up past the New Hampshire house in the spring, and was tabled during the Senate summer session. The Murray family spoke against the bill. They call it, like, shredding the ribbon or something like that Mm. on their website. They also tried to negotiate with the landowner for a 100-year lease of the tree or buy the property, but the landowner wouldn't go for it. And as I said, in none of these stories could I find why the property owner wants to cut the tree down, but we're at least left with the definite impression that thousands of internet obsessive flocking there every year is an issue for them. Another Mm. thing I don't get is, if you look at a photo, (laughs) it's woods. The trees are really, really close together. So why don't they just put the ribbon on another tree? I know that's the tree her car hit, but there are a lot of trees there, all very close to each other, and they all look the same. 
Once the text <laughs> is approved and there are rules for how many lines, like I said in words, the marker can be ordered under the regular state-funded marker program, which is limited to 10 markers a year. Cooperative markers can also be ordered for placement on locally maintained roads or mun- municipal land or when the state money has been exhausted for the fiscal year. And that has to have a cooperation of a landowner who isn't the state mm. because it's not on state land. Sponsors of cooperative markers assume full responsibility for the cost of the marker and future maintenance through a formal agreement with the state program. And currently, markers cost about $2,000 to $2,300, and there's a waiting oh. list for both regular and cooperative markers. Sponsors can propose a location, but for the state ones, the Department of Transportation selects the final location to ensure safety and compliance with road regulations. We're always doing something, Julie her sister told the Littleton Courier, Mora's case is one of the biggest missing person cases in the world, so there's always something mm-hmm. happening. Even today I got a phone call about a tip. There's always stuff coming in. The historical marker will be, a, will be huge for us, but we continue to follow leads and try to find her. And this is Maureen again. For the family, it's obviously the biggest, most painful, most horrific, most life-shredding thing that's ever happened to them. And I feel for them. Her father, Fred, has been rightfully obsessive about it to the point where he's thought of by law enforcement and stuff as a big pain in the ass. And oh. and I feel for them enough that I even have, um, in the book I'm writing, a, a father who's kind of in a Ooh. similar... I'm always plugging those books. But no, a father who's kind of in a similar situation because I feel... I really feel for Fred Murray and for the family. But in general, in the big scheme of things... This is not of historic significance. Outside of the true crime realm, it's not. It's important for reasons of looking at how the system works, how disappearances like this could be treated differently by law enforcement, how young women who are having issues are treated, how they're treated both before and after they disappear. And I'm not saying whether it deserves a marker or not, though I, if I were writing that text, I would definitely take out the line about comparing her to Amelia Earhart. But it just shows how myopic some of these people who spend their life on the internet could be. I'm not including the Murray family or Maura's friends in this. But, for instance, the state rep who introduced it, I read in one of the articles, had never heard of the case before a constituent brought it up to her. Now, granted, she lives in a different part of New Hampshire, although it's not a big state. But if this is one of the biggest missing person cases ever in the world, how does a person who lives in that state not have heard of it? So all I'm saying is that people need to understand the world around them a little. The people who own the property deserve some peace, and they deserve people to respect their property. The fact that the Murrays are in pain, the Murrays, not the thousands of internet obsessive who want to go there and hang out and find big meaning in some Mountain Dew bottle they find in the snow or something, it's tragic what the Murrays (laughs) are feeling. But it doesn't mean that this case has bigger magnitude than the rights of people and their property. And and again, I'm not saying no marker. I'm just saying people have to learn some perspective. And frankly, I think it's just a place. It's a place Maura Marie is not going to come back to. It's it's a place Mm. like a million fucking places in Maine and New Hampshire and Massachusetts. And I think a much better memorial would be in her hometown... Yes. You know, naming something after her, an athletic field, or doing something constructive like that. And I also want to say, I know this sounds kind of namby-pamby or whatever for me, but that's a narrow, winding, two-lane road with very 
tight shoulders, no sidewalks if you've never been there. It's in the middle of nowhere. And it's not safe for people to be going there and hanging out on the road and stuff. And I don't know what people expect to find there. They're not going to find anything. They're not going to find anything. I know to people who think her case is as important as Amelia Earhart. And I don't think we have to go through the litany of missing people who are just as important, who are maybe more famous and stuff. But I know they're going to get annoyed with my attitude towards this. But I'm annoyed by this lack of perspective and how an internet obsession is not history. There are there are yeah. there are millions of years of history, and this isn't even a drop in it. And there are plenty of things that have happened in New Hampshire that there should probably be markers for true crime or not. And Ooh. that's my rant. Thank you for your update and rant. You're welcome. I don't have any updates or rants. Okay, then I guess we should get right to the. Grandview Topless Coffee Ooh, the Shop. the second half. Part two. Okay, so I'll just recap. The Grandview Topless Coffee Shop opened in Vassalboro, Maine in February 2009 to much international and national and state celebration, leering, winking, and drooling. And it burned down by arson fire on June 3rd, 2009, just hours after the owner, Donald Crabtree, had been at a planning board meeting looking to expand, make the hours longer, and add dancing and stuff. Speculation had been that somebody unhappy with having that kind of sinful activity in town burned it down. But as we found out at the end of the last episode... The suspect was actually Ray Bellavance, who was unhappy that his sometime girlfriend, Krista McIntyre, was working as a topless waitress there, possibly doing sex work, though that was his excuse. He was arrested after fleeing to South Carolina and languished in jail for 19 months until his trial in December 2011. So we're going to pick up the story. And you'll see that it's actually a little more complicated than all that. As often stories about men like this are. By the time Raymond Bellavance's arson case came to trial in December 2011, Judge Michaela Murphy had already rejected two motions to dismiss. Oh, Michaela. She's in so many of our episodes. Yes, she is. The first motion in August 2011 by attorney Robert Ruffner, who seems to be Bellavance's second attorney. after That first one may have been a court appointed, I don't know, asked that the charges be dismissed because of issues he said included a sloppy investigation, withheld evidence, and the fact inducements were given to a confidential informant and that was not disclosed to the defense. Murphy, the judge, didn't dismiss it, saying that all could be discussed when the trial came up. In September, another attorney, Andrews Campbell, apparently, Judy Harrison of the Bangor Daily News mentioned a couple times in her articles that Bella Vance considered representing himself. And we know frequently... Of course he did. Of course he did. And it's always a certain type of guy that does that. And they also seem to not get along with their lawyers, just in my reading. And by the way, the stories in both the Kennebec Journal and Bangor Daily News refer to his attorneys, plural. And the other attorney was never named, but it turned out to be Pam Ames of Waterville, who... Hasn't she been in some of our She has been in some of our early... Yes. Murphy, the judge, appointed her to help Campbell because the case was so complicated. I think... 
think I read that in one of the appeal documents. Yeah, apparently she didn't have much of a presence at the trial because she isn't mentioned in any of the stories. But anyway, in September, his apparently new attorney, Andrews Campbell, asked that the charges be dismissed because DNA found on the gas can that was found on the scene wasn't Bellavance's, and Murphy also didn't dismiss on those grounds. The trial finally opened on December 14, 2011. Bellavance's attorney, Andrews Campbell, told the jury of nine women uh, and se- told, <laughs> told the jury of nine women and seven men, there were four alternates, that Bellavance didn't set the fire and was unfairly targeted as a suspect because he lived nearby, which he didn't really, but I guess nearby is relative. That's me, obviously, not the attorney. And this is from the Betty Adams story. Betty covered it for the Kennebec Journal, and she's the wife of Glenn Adams, the Associated Press story, who I quoted reporter who I quoted earlier, so it's one big happy family. This is Andrews Campbell talking. We have one theory and virtually no physical evidence connecting Mr. Bellavance to this crime. This, of course, was not a terribly popular establishment in town. A lot of people didn't care to have it in town. This is the context in which this fire occurred. Campbell told the jury in his opening statements the fire was intentional and probably set the night before. Bellavance, quote, really likes kids and people, unquote, and is not the type of person to set a fire at nighttime and endanger them. Mr. Bellavance is a fighter and a lover, but not an arsonist, Campbell said. Mm. Yes. WDA Alan Kelly told jurors that Crabtree, the owner, had nothing to gain from the fire since he was sleeping inside the building at the time. His daughters and grandchildren were living there, and the building was not insured. Quote, he lost everything, Kelly said. Kelly pointed out that Bellavance, on the other hand, was unhappy that Krista McIntyre was working there. As I mentioned earlier a couple times, but and Kelly mentioned in his opening statements, Bellavance showed up on March 9, 2009 and threatened Crabtree. Crabtree called police and a sheriff's deputy issued a trespass warning to Bellavance against being at the coffee shop. Kelly said, You're going to hear there was a lot of anger, jealousy, a loss of control, and a need to establish control over Raymond Bellavance's girlfriend, Krista McIntyre. The trial testimony opened with the account of what happened that night, beginning with the testimony of the two ambulance drivers who saw the fire and alerted the family. This is from Judy Harrison's story in the Bangor Daily News. Donald Crabtree's daughter, Crystal Crabtree, 21, and her fiancé, Joseph Murphy, and I just want to say as an editor, I would tell reporters, fiancé is is a meaningless label to use. You know, unless you're writing about the upcoming wedding, it's her partner or her boyfriend or whatever. I notice this more in Maine than anywhere else, that fiancé is used frequently in news stories and obituaries and stuff with couples who have, like, kids and stuff. And I'm not judging, but I'm just saying... Either get married or fucking don't get married. But fiancé, if you're an editor, a writer, in a news story, fiancé is a meaningless label to use. But anyway... It's meaningless to me, period. Yes. I think you're either married or you're not. Right, right. Who cares? Reporters used to get annoyed with me because I'm like, don't describe somebody as someone's fiancé unless you're writing about the wedding. You know, unless that's relevant. But anyway, they both lived in Greenbush, which is a town north of Bangor on the Penobscot River, quite a ways away, but they were staying at the Grandview. Murphy, the witness, not the judge, the fiancé, testified that he had used a gasoline-powered lawnmower on June 2nd to mow the lawn around the coffee house and the former motel units. He said he put the can back in the garage behind the building. When asked if he could identify a similar plastic five-gallon gas can found at the scene, he said it was not the one he had used for the lawnmower. 
Daniel Young, an investigator with the state fire marshal's office, said he arrived at the scene at 8.20 a.m. that Wednesday, more than seven hours after the fire was reported. With him was Shasta, a dog trained to sniff out ignitable liquids. I love sniffer dogs. They're I know, me good. too. They're, They're so such good, good dogs. Yes, good they dogs. are. But Young told the jury that Shasta identified six places on the ground, some next to the siding at the back of the former motel near the garage. The investigator took soil samples from those places and sent them to the Maine State Police Crime Lab to be tested. Michelle Fleury, a forensic chemist from the lab, testified that all six samples tested positive for gasoline. Bella Vance, who, as I said, at one point considered representing himself, consulted often with his attorney, Judy Harrison wrote. His comments of, wow, wow, after Crystal Crabtree and Murphy testified, earned him a rebuke from Judge Murphy. Maybe he just thought they had good testimony. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. He was impressed. But Murphy said, I heard the defendant say, wow, wow, a few times. She said that to Andrews Campbell. <laughs> If I can hear him, the jury can hear him. Now is the time for him to show some respect to the jury that is going to be deciding his case. Ooh, please, please speak with him about that, Mr. Campbell. And it described <laughs> Bellavance, by the way, as clean-shaven, dressed in a suit, white shirt and tie. And I only learned recently on another podcast that unless lawyer like defendants have to pr- provide their own clothes and frequently yes. lawyers buy or have like yes. a closet full of clothes i didn't know yes. that yeah yes. but it's going to go in my next book um yes. book I'm writing. but anyways bell Vance remained quiet and wrote notes to his lawyer for the remainder of the afternoon after the judge got mad little of the trial was based on actual evidence the gas can was apparently the one piece of evidence that really tied anyone to anything, but it actually didn't. Jennifer Sabian, a DNA analyst with the Maine State Crime Lab, testified that she tested swabs from each side of the gas can. The only person whose DNA she could not eliminate belonged to Ken McMaster of the state fire marshal's office. She said DNA that might have come from the investigator was in a mixed sample of DNA found on the swab at the bottom of the can. Because the sample included DNA from more than one person, Sabian testified that she could not conclude from whom it came. And this was 2011, and so that was tested between 2009 and 2011. I think that that touch DNA technology was not as good as as it is now. And also, you know, I know people think that DNA is just going to be all over the place, but the absence of DNA on something doesn't mean somebody didn't touch it. Also, we're in Maine, so... Not that we're backwards, but the touch DNA seemed like that was... Yeah. Yeah, back then it was... It wasn't everywhere. Right. Rather than go blow by blow through the trial, I'm going to give you the different perspectives about what happened the night of June 2nd and what led up to it and what happened after from different people. The information for these accounts all comes from a combination of the reporting of Betty Adams of the Kennebec Journal and Judy Harrison of the Bangor Daily News. And they're both like those old time, yes. long time, decades long reporters that mm-hmm. used to be at newspapers that were just kind of kick ass journalists. But anyway. Yes. And these aren't even in order of how people testified, but just the order that I felt made the story flow more logically. First, Ken McMaster, the investigator for the state fire marshal's office and the case's primary investigator. He said the fire started outside the rear of the building and was concentrated toward the center where the restaurant was. He determined the fire was caused by intentional human element, arson, that damage was heaviest on the building's exterior, indicating that's where it started, and that gasoline was the accelerant. 
McMaster said he interviewed people at the scene, including Crabtree, the owner, and the day after the fire, he met with Dean Drisco, who had called a tip line to say he heard Bellavance threaten a day earlier to burn the shop down because he was upset that McIntyre worked there. McMaster first interviewed Bellavance himself on March 31, 2010, about nine months after the fire. He testified that Bellavance told him he was attracted to McIntyre because the sex was good. But the relationship was rocky, and Bellavance told him that he broke up with McIntyre around the time of the fire because she lied too much. McMaster said Bellavance described her as the world's biggest liar. Bellavance told McMaster he wanted McIntyre to quit the waitressing job and went to the coffee shop on March 9, 2009 to try to get her fired. Quote, Mr. Bellavance said he knew they were looking for him and that he had an alibi for the night of the fire and wanted us to check it out, McMaster testified. The alibi, according to McMaster, was that Bellavance spent time at the OTR club in downtown Augusta and he saw McIntyre, who he was supposed to be with that night, talking to Jason Lunt, a coffee house customer who you're going to hear more about in a little bit, in a parking lot nearby, and then returned to the bar. Bellavance returned to the bar. McMaster said Bellavance said he later got a ride from a friend to his daughter Samantha Bellavance's home off Route 3. McMaster said that Bellavance denied setting the fire throughout the interview. He also said that when he was finished interviewing Bellavance, he had probable cause to arrest him on the arson charge, but wanted to check more. And if you'll remember, Bellavance was arrested as being a habitual offender shortly after that, paid his fines, in early April got out of jail and um, left the state. Defense attorney Campbell asked about cameras at the entrance to the trailer park where Bellavance's daughter lived. McMaster said he checked and didn't see any. He didn't look too hard, Raymond Bellavance said aloud in court. <laughs> but I'll just say... <laughs> I know. But I'll just say here that even if there had been some, the likelihood nine months after the fact that there'd be a recording proving Bellavance was right is about nil. McMaster also said when Campbell was cross-examining him that no tests were conducted on other items found near the fire scene. A lighter on the front lawn, a beer can behind the property, and a black bandana from the front parking lot. And I just want to say as a longtime Mainer that those three items could probably be found in any like 50 yard radius anywhere in Maine. A lighter, a beer can, and a bandana. And you'll hear some more from McMaster when we bring up some of the other characters since he was the investigator. But first, let's go through the folks who testified against Bellavance. Thomas Mulkern was the star witness for the prosecution. He was initially listed as a witness for the defense. They had to suspend the trial for half a day because the day before he was about to testify, he told lawyers he wanted to change what he told the investigators and clear his conscience. Like many of those involved in this case, Mulkern, who was 26 at the time of the trial, had a lengthy criminal record and had a bad drug habit. And when he testified, he had just gotten out of rehab. He'd been convicted before a burglary, theft, escape, and drug possession. He was given immunity from prosecution for any charges related to the fire, including illegal drug use in exchange for his testimony, which was objected to strenuously by Bellavance's attorneys, the papers reported. Mulkern denied charges that he came forward because he was worried he would be charged with arson. He told jurors his testimony was part of his rehabilitation process. Quote, when you go through rehab, you have to deal with the past to move forward, he said. He said that he and his then-girlfriend, Emma Wood, met Bellavance between 8 and 9 p.m. on June 2nd in the parking lot of a bar in downtown Augusta. Wood was driving because neither man had a driver's license. And I do believe if that was the OTR club, it's where, uh, it's not there anymore, but it's where Hazel Greens used to be, for those of you familiar with Augusta. Oh, okay. Judy Harrison writes that from the bar, they headed toward the home of a man they planned to buy drugs from. 
Shortly before arriving there, they pulled into the parking lot of a business on Western Avenue when Bellavant saw Krista McIntyre's car parked in the lot of a nearby church. And just from my deep Augusta knowledge, I'm going to speculate... Ooh, St. Mary's. Uh, yes, I'm going to speculate that they pulled into either the 7-Eleven on the corner of Sewell and Western Avenue or yeah. the Dunkin' Donuts kind of kitty quarter across the street and saw her car in the parking lot at St. Mary's, our former church and school, because I can't think of any other churches in Augusta on Western Avenue that have parking lots on Western Avenue. I can't either. Mulkern said that when Bellavance returned to Wood's car, he was upset because McIntyre was with another man who he didn't recognize, Mulkern testified. They went back to the apartment that Mulkern shared with Wood, and they took their cocaine. They had, did their cocaine, whatever the terminology is. I know I'm square not to know it, but... This account never appeared in Betty Adams' Kennebec Journal stories that I could find, or that I remember since I edited some of them. Her account is more the same account as one McMaster gives that Bellavance told him, that Bellavance had run into Krista McIntyre talking to another man, Jason Lunt, it turns out, who you'll hear from later, earlier that evening in the parking lot of the OTR Club in downtown Augusta, which, as I said, no longer exists. Both Betty and Judy agree, however, that Mulkern testified that the three went to a mobile home park off Route 3 in Augusta, where Bella Vance's daughter Samantha lived, and that there, the plot to torch the topless coffee shop was hatched in the back bedroom and bathroom. Quote, he said he wanted to burn down the topless coffee shop and he needed a ride to do it, Mulkern said. I'd never been there before. Mulkern was wearing light-colored summer clothes, and Bellavance, who apparently kept clothes at his daughter's home, gave Mulkern a pair of black pants, a red long-sleeved shirt, and a black hooded sweatshirt to wear instead. Christopher Partridge, an acquaintance of Bellavance's, who was at the trailer and described in some accounts as a friend of Bellavance's, a good friend of Bellavance's daughter, helped put two large gas cans in the trunk hmm. of Wood's car, according to Mulkern. Sometime between 12.30 and 12.45 a.m., Mulkern said Wood drove him and Bellavance to the coffee shop. Wood dropped off the pair and the two gasoline containers on the side of the dirt road that borders the property, which I'm going to say is Mudget Hill Road. Quote, Ray told Emma to go back to Samantha's place and wait for a phone call, then come back and pick us up, Mulkern said. Mulkern said Bellavance took the gas cans across to the back of the coffee shop, where he emptied both cans onto the side of the building. Then Bellavance used his lighter to ignite the gasoline, Mulkern said. Quote, I saw swoosh and fire started going to the building, Mulkern said at the trial. Then he said Bellavance got upset because he'd left his cell phone in Wood's car and couldn't contact her to get a ride back to Augusta. Mulkern didn't have a cell phone either. <laughs> I know. Quote, he got frustrated. He got angry. He got upset, Mulkern said. He's not a very pleasant person when he gets like that. It's everybody's fault but his own. Mulkern said he tried to calm Bellavance, telling him it didn't matter. He said, you don't understand how this is. We're going to get life in prison for this. There are people inside. When I learned that, I was overwhelmed, Mulkern testified. I wanted to get away from him. My life was flashing before my eyes. He said if he'd known people were in the building, he wouldn't have gone along with the whole thing. He said Bellavance forced him to take a drink of twisted tea, and Mulkern thought he was him. <laughs> and Mulkern... <laughs> Sorry. And Mulkern thought he was being poisoned, so there were wow. no witnesses. Get all that that by, could be. By know. the way, he doesn't say where the twisted tea came from. The two men started to fight, Mulkern said, and Bellavance pulled a knife on him. Mulkern said at some point... I have to cut in here and say this is a typical Maine um, I know. <laughs> crime. I know. 
I know. Where the guys are fighting and like half the murders that aren't domestic murders are. I know. I know. Drunk. I find this all very believable. But uh, anyway, so the two men started to fight. Mulkern said, and Bellavance pulled a knife on him. Mulkern, at some point during the fight, lost the sweatshirt he'd been given earlier. The two men headed into the woods with Bellavance holding a knife against Mulkern's back. Mulkern said Bellavance told Mulkern he was familiar with the woods. Mulkern wasn't. The two heard dogs barking, then sirens, and assumed they were fire trucks responding to the fire. They were so afraid the dogs were tracking them. Remember, they had been doing heavy drugs earlier. But they were so afraid the dogs were tracking them that the two men hid waist deep in a swamp at some point. They finally ended up at Lorette Kellogg's house. She's Bellavance's aunt, and her testimony backs this up somewhat. Kellogg of Augusta, and if you look at a map, the Grandview is right near the Vassalboro-Augusta line. She lives on Dam Pond Road, and if you look where the Grandview used to be, I don't know the distance, but you can get through the woods, and it does look like there's a lot of swampy area there and stuff to get to where to get to um, Dam Pond Road. But anyway, she said she awoke about 5 a.m. June 3rd, 2009, to heavy pounding on her front door. She said it was Bellavance who said, Matante, it's Little Ray. And for those of you who don't know... French. Matante means auntie or my aunt. Augusta has a heavy French-Canadian population. Bellavance told her his truck had gone into a pond, she said, and he wanted to use her phone. He also asked for a t-shirt because he was soaked. Kellogg wouldn't let Bellavance inside, instead throwing a portable phone. Nice aunt. Well, she probably was smart. She yeah, wouldn't let know, him inside, but... <laughs> instead throwing a portable phone to him and a t-shirt from her kitchen window. He had some other guy with him, Kellogg said. He stood behind Raymond. He had a baseball hat on and he never said a word. I did not pay much attention. I just wanted them to go on their way. The encounter was so unusual, she called her sister that morning to tell her about it. She learned about the fire later that day. Emma Wood and Partridge eventually picked up the two guys a short time later after they used the phone to call for a ride. Bellavance also warned Mulkern to keep his mouth shut or he could be charged with arson, Mulkern said. Quote, he said he would cut my throat. During Mulkern's cross-examination, Bellavance's lawyer, Andrews Campbell, accused Mulkern of getting the information from newspaper stories after Kellogg testified and changing his story to get out of being prosecuted. He said, I'm telling the truth. He was hazy on some of the timeline, but that's because he'd been shooting a lot of cocaine intravenously Mm. that night, he said. Well, you know. Yep. Later, John David Waterhouse, an investigator... (laughs) John David (laughs) Booter. I know, that's that's what I thought of. (laughs) That's what I thought of. But he was an investigator for the defense, testified that he went through those same woods the week before Mulkern testified and found his way easily along tote roads and never got his hunting shoes wet. And I'll just say to that, I don't know if it came up at the trial. If it did, no one mentioned it. But the terrain is a lot different in Maine in early June than it is in mid-December or early December. When, exactly. When the ground in June, things are really wet and swampy. Sometimes even the snow isn't all melted. But even if it is, it takes weeks in weeks for things to not be swampy. If you look at a map, that's a wet area. And mid-December, the ground tends to be dry, if not frozen, even if there's no snow on the ground. And also they said they thought they were being tracked by dogs, so they hid in the water. So it's not like they just randomly got wet. And also, John David Waterhouse was doing it in daylight, wasn't high on drugs, and Hannah just set a building with people in it on fire. Mm. So his trip, I think, through the woods would have been different. 
than Mulkers yes. and Bellavances. Good point. I, I think that's that's just like a totally false, you know. But one issue with Mulkern's testimony was that for the nearly two years between the fire and when he testified, he told investigators he was in Portland the night of the fire and gave Bella Vance an alibi. So that's why Bella Vance's lawyer was so unhappy. Emma Wood, Mulkern's former girlfriend, more or less backed up his version of things. She testified she drove Bella Vance and Mulkern a number of times to that area, including on trips near the coffee shop. She said the men would go four-wheeling, and she recalled one instance when they had a gas can with them, but she couldn't recall the date or where exactly she dropped them off. She said at the time she was using a variety of drugs, mostly cocaine, pills, Oxycontin, and per- Percocet, and some heroin. What? Jeez. I know. Her memories, quote, are all snapshots of things I remember, she said. She recalled getting gas for the gas can at a large gas station, but said nothing fixes the date. Christopher Partridge of Jackman, which is way up in northern Maine on the Canada border, Samantha Bellavance's friend, who was at her, supposedly at her place that night, had some very brief testimony. He was interviewed in the Kennebec County Jail, where he was an inmate, between August and September 2009, but he said he had no information about the case. He was interviewed more recently as well, and voluntarily provided a DNA sample since he supposedly helped put the gas cans in the car. But his testimony was very brief. Several witnesses pled the fifth, or were told by Judge Murphy they could plead the fifth. And almost all the witnesses are people with criminal records. And so there was a lot of people pleading the fifth and not giving great testimony. <laughs> also testifying against Bella Vance was his estranged wife, Tara Mishu Bella Vance. She said, and I'm just going to call her Tara so I don't have to say that hyphenated name all the time. She said she was one of the first people to tell the police that Bella Vance had threatened to burn down the Grandview Topless Coffee Shop. A couple of days before the fire, she was hosting a barbecue at her West Gardner place, home I assume, when Bella Vance and Krista McIntyre arrived, uninvited. Tara said, I remember asking Krista if she was still working at the coffee shop. She said yes. Ray bought it in because he didn't like my question to her and said, not until I burned the fucking place down. And it says expletive, but I know he said fucking, so I'm just going to say Of course he did. She said she didn't take the comment seriously. I wish I had, she said. Now, if you remember in the affidavit, McMaster said she said she did take the comment seriously. So, anyway... The night after the barbecue, Maine State Trooper Chris Rogers arrested. There's a lot of similar names. There's a few Rogers in this story. I know. There's a few Youngs. Very I don't confusing. know. If it was a book, he wouldn't be able to get away with that. But anyway, the next night, Maine State Trooper Chris Rogers arrested her on a charge of operating after suspension, and she spent the night in jail. She woke up in the Kennebec County Jail on the morning of June 3rd to news reports saying the business had burned down. So I guess they must have had, what, the Today Show on in the jail? I don't know. The minute she was released, she called police to tell them what Ray had said at the barbecue a few days before. Quote, I had to spend the night in jail and woke up to the shop being on fire and the news and the realization I probably could have stopped it if I had just said something, she testified. And I want to reassure her here that if she had called the police on June 1st and said Ray Bellavance said he was pissed off at Krista McIntyre and was going to burn down the topless coffee shop, the police would not have immediately done anything. No shit, they wouldn't have done anything. She also says of Bellavance, he was very abusive. I loved him to death. He beat me daily. Hmm. I'm not sure exactly how she said that, but (laughs) Judy and Betty both quoted her as saying it. 
So, in those words, she said she volunteered to talk with the, uh, the state fire investigator, McMaster, and that she cooperated in the past with Kennebec Sheriff's Office Detective Al Morin on some other fire and drug cases. When asked if her husband was sitting at the defense table, Ray Bellavance, they were estranged, they weren't divorced yet, but when asked if her husband was sitting at the defense table, Tara said, no, he's not there. When asked a second time to identify him, she said she did not have her glasses with her and did not see him in the courtroom. I can relate to that. So Bellavance stood up and waved his arms at her. It doesn't say whether she identified him after that. She said she married Ray Bellavance in March 2008, but the relationship quickly soured and they separated after a few months. She testified that the two have not lived together since, but are still legally married. And Judy Harrison writes, responding to questions from Campbell, you know, Bellavance's attorney, Tara said she couldn't believe McIntyre hugged and kissed her the day of the barbecue. She also admitted telling investigators she previously arranged, quote, call-outs, unquote, for sex work for McIntyre, for which Tara received $50 and once $200. And the um, newspaper stories express some confusion as to what call-outs are. I assume she means she set her up with somebody and got a fee for it. Procurement. Yes, thank you. She broke down in tears as she testified to that, saying, I definitely didn't want to come in here and be painted as a bad person. Under cross-examination, she admitted that since the arson at the topless coffee shop, she has been involved in at least two other fire incidents. She testified to being a witness. Uh, yeah, you'll hear. Uh, well, you'll. Okay. You're, I'm going to clear that up. Okay. Both occurred in 2011, the year of the trial. In one, she said she saw Andrew St. Amand of Randolph assault his then girlfriend, that was in April, and threatened to burn down the apartment house they were living in. Quote, I got her out of the scene. She was slumped down, hiding in the back seat of my car. A few minutes later, we could see the house fully engulfed in flames from a road across the river. And I just want to say fully engulfed is redundant because engulfed means but. Okay. Uh, give the poor woman right. a break. I know. The house, by the way, was owned by Dan Demerit, former spokesman at the time for Maine governor at the time, Paula Page. And then in July of 2011, Tara said her then boyfriend, Jason Hewitt of Wayne. It's like we're getting this tour of Kennebec County with all these towns. But as we know, people, there's just a lot of small towns around Augusta, and people, especially ones with transient lives, tend to live in many of them. Yes. As you know, right? Her then-boyfriend, Jason Hewitt of Wayne, knocked her out. I was awakened by someone kicking the bedroom door that was on fire, Hmm. she said. He threw me over his shoulder and carried me out. Hewitt's father was trying to put out the fire, Tara said. Both men, she said, Andrew Sainamon and Hewitt, had been convicted of domestic violence assault. Campbell asked her to, he tried to hone down more about those two arson cases because it is kind of coincidental, but I'm not totally out of the realm of possibility it being Augusta area, Maine, that she was involved in three domestic violence type arson cases over the course of a couple of years. But she probably pretty common. But Murphy told him that he had to stop because Campbell had to stop because they were cases that were pending and there hadn't been any conviction or whatever yet. So, and I didn't take the time to look them up to see what had happened. Anyway, Dean Drisco of Vassalboro testified that he was also a guest at Tara's cookout. And if you remember from earlier, he's the one who called Ken McMaster, the investigator, the day after the fire to say he heard Bellavance threaten to burn the place down. And he said that when Bellavance and McIntyre arrived at the barbecue, Bellavance was very agitated. And McIntyre was telling Ray that she had to go to work. Drisco said. 
He said, don't worry about going to work because I'll burn the fucking place down. Several people testified in one way or another that Bellavance had confessed to them about the fire. Tina Savage of Reedfield, and she spells Tina T-E-E-N-A, testified that she and Bellavance dated for eight months after the fire, and he told her several times he'd said it. For crying out loud. She's also a cousin of Krista McIntyre, by the Mm. way. Quote, he threatened to burn my house down and shoot my horse if I told anybody about the fire, Savage said. Troy Hallett, formerly of Hallowell, and at the time of the trial a resident of the main state prison in Warren, testified he talked with Bellavance several times about how Bellavance hated McIntyre's job at the coffee shop. Hallett had told police originally that Bellavance confessed to him, but on the stand he said that Bellavance said he was going to burn down the donut shop and kill her, but he never really said that he actually did it or not. He just said he was gonna. He also testified that Bellavance told him he used gloves to handle the gas tan, something both Campbell and and Deputy D.A. Alan Kelly said there was no mention of during a taped interview with Ken McMaster. Quote, Ray told me about them, but I don't know if I told the investigator about them, Hallett said. When Campbell offered Hallett a typed copy of that interview to refresh his memory, Hallett declined, saying, I don't read. Does that mean he can't or he I I, I think he he chooses chooses not not to. to. Okay. (laughs) All right. That's why I took it over. Christopher Russ, also an inmate, said he was briefly out of jail on probation in late June 2009 when Bellavance came up to him at a cookout in Litchfield to ask for help getting money. Russ said Bellavance wanted to flee Maine because he thought the police were about to charge him with setting the fire. Now remember, this is in June 2009, right after the fire, and Bellavance wasn't arrested until almost a year later. The warrant wasn't until April 5th, 2010, so, you know, he was already out there as a suspect. It's kind of funny how long the investigation took. But anyway, quote, He told me he burned it down because Krista McIntyre slept with Don Crabtree, Russ said. He said that Bella Vance attacked him in jail on January 13th, 2011, calling him a rat and a snitch for telling authorities that Bella Vance had confessed. Sergeant Stephen Schutt testified he broke up the jail fight by using pepper spray on Bellavance, then took him away in handcuffs. He said Bellavance told him, It's nothing against you guys. He ratted me out. Russ said his reputation as a stand-up dude at the jail suffered because of it all, and he almost didn't testify because he's worried what will happen to him in jail now that he's testified. And Bellavance, if you remember, ultimately when he got out of jail in April, on April 2nd, um... 2010 fled the state and was found in South Carolina. So his stepson, Alex Lane, said he was the driver for that trip and Lane's girlfriend joined them. Lane testified that Bellavance bankrolled the road trip to Spartanburg, South Carolina, and they just randomly went there, apparently. They just drove down 95, but they ran out of money. Quote, we ended up staying a long time, Lane said. We got down there. We got stranded down there. We got pulled over and lost the car. Bellavance contacted his lawyer, his ex-wife, and several other people while he was in South Carolina, according to Lane. Lane also said Bellavance confessed to him that he burned down the coffee shop. Lane said Bellavance told him he and another person got a ride there, poured gas into the building, lit it, and escaped through the woods. But he also said Bellavance was worried about being framed for the arson. So I'm not sure if they know what being framed means or if there's... (laughs) I don't know. know. Another inmate, Scott Allen Tibbetts, 
and it's not clear. This is very confusing in both stories, but he was apparently from Maine and in jail in South Carolina with Bellavance after Bellavance was arrested in South Carolina, but he's from Maine. And in any case, he said he was high on methamphetamines when he told investigators that Bellavance confessed to starting the fire. Quote, I thought he was, but it's not what he was admitting to, Tibbet said on the stand. He said when he was extradited from South Carolina, one officer said he could help his case by helping investigators with the Bellavance case. Tibbet said he refused to do that. Kennebec Sheriff's Office Corporal George Nagel III testified he talked to Bellavance by phone on March 9, 2009, the day he went to the coffee shop and tried to get Crabtree to fire McIntyre. Nagel said Bellavance admitted to being at the coffee shop and said he was pissed off because McIntyre worked there, and Bellavance also told Nagel that she was doing drugs and charging for sex there as well. Quote, he said if she was going to work there, he was done with her, Nagel testified. The owner of the coffee shop, Donald Crabtree also testified. He said on the stand he had no physical relationship with McIntyre, whom he hired two days after the coffee shop opened. When Deputy D.A. Kelly asked him, did you have sex with Krista? Crabtree replied, yes, maybe up to three times. (laughs) Well, what does he he think a physical relationship is? I do not know. In fact... (laughs) In fact, I can remember editing this story and saying to Betty, he said he had no physical relationship, but then he said he had sex with her, and she laughed and said, yep, that's what he said. And he testified that Krista told him the job kept her off drugs and from hanging around people who were a bad influence. He said he fired and rehired McIntyre several times, including the week of the fire, and provided $250 to add to the $1,000 down payment she had saved by a car. He also said he told McMaster, the fire marshal, two days after the fire, that Bellavance might have been in a white pickup truck that had been backing up in the driveway and cruising by the business frequently. Crabtree said he called police on March 9, 2009, the day Bellavance came to the coffee shop trying to get McIntyre fired because he didn't want trouble. That was the only time he'd ever talked to Bellavance, he said. And just remember, he said that on the stand, and he also said that in one of the newspaper stories after Bellavance was arrested, and um, that's important to remember for later when you're trying to decide if Bellavance really did it or not. Crabtree said he told McMaster about Bellavance's visits to the coffee shop after McMaster asked him if there were any unusual incidents leading up to the fire. And Crabtree testified that Bellavance had told him McIntyre was working as a prostitute, and that's his words, out of the coffee shop, and that her clients were customers. Crabtree said Bellavance also said he was concerned about McIntyre's drug use. But Crabtree said the meeting ended with the two men shaking hands. Still, after he left, Crabtree had the police issue a criminal trespass warning to Bellavance to keep him off the property. Crabtree also reported an incident with customer Jason Lunt just days before the fire. Crabtree described Lunt as, quote, a customer up to two times a day from the day we opened till the day we burned. He said Lunt threatened to smash the cell phone of a customer who used it to photograph McIntyre. Lunt, by the way, is the guy Bellavance said he saw with Krista the night of the fire in the parking lot of either the bar or St. Mary's, whichever. Crabtree said he intervened to get the customer to delete the photo from his phone. He said later he realized Lunt was in a relationship with McIntyre. The night of the planning board meeting, hours before the fire, McIntyre was supposed to go to it with Crabtree and spend the night with him, he said. But she didn't show up. 
He said he got home from the meeting at 9.05 p.m. and went straight to bed with bad toothache. And as you remember, she was actually in Augusta with Jason Lunt at that time. He also testified that no people had directly threatened him or told him they did not like having the topless coffee shop in town. No one at the planning board meeting, remember, from the minutes in our last episode, spoke in opposition to him expanding the shop or making it a strip club. There was hardly anybody at that meeting the night of the fire. And he testified to that at the trial, too. When he was woken by the ambulance driver because of the fire, I looked the situation over real quick and I told him, somebody set this place on fire, Crabtree testified. He said he had a garage full of older fire extinguishers and new ones throughout the building, but the ambulance driver, Robert Richards, told him not to use them, that the fire department had been called. Yeah, I think there's probably more to that than his testimony. It's weird, yeah. And he probably said, don't go in there, it's dangerous. Yeah, just let I would them think build, so. Or something like yeah. that. Crabtree also had some complaints about the emergency response to the fire that seem odd to me. Crabtree said he was awakened by his daughter and the ambulance driver at about 12.15 a.m. the night of the fire. They said it was closer to 1, and the records show it was first called into Waldo County Dispatch at 12.50 a.m., which in turn alerted local responders, and the call went out to the Vassalboro Fire Department, which is a volunteer department, so a little delayed, at 1.13 a.m. When told that, Crabtree said he didn't think that was right. He said Richards was on the scene for only six or eight minutes, and he said it took an hour and a half for the first fire truck to arrive. I don't believe they called 911 until they were back in Belfast, he said, which is like an hour away. I should have dialed it myself. And he may have been being sarcastic. It's hard to tell from the story if he's being sarcastic or if he really believes they went back to Belfast and called the fire in. As he testified, Crabtree appeared to have problems recalling what he told investigators right after the fire. Judy Harrison writes, and both the prosecutor and defense attorney handed him printed transcripts of taped interviews to refresh his memory. Quote, I don't recall much of what I said June 3rd after I stood in the parking lot all night long watching my place burn. I was wondering where my kids and grandkids were going to live. Jason Lunt, the guy who visited the coffee shop two times a day, broke another guy's camera for taking photos <laughs> of Krista McIntyre, and was the guy Bellavant saw with Krista on the night of the fire, also testified. Lunt of Oakland, which has figured in some of our episodes. Yes, it has. Said he did visit the coffee shop as often as twice a day, but kept it secret from his wife. He said he threatened to destroy the other customer's cell phone because the picture included him, and he was afraid his wife would find out he was there, not because the oh, photo yeah. was of McIntyre. Yeah, because she's going to see this random guy's cell phone mm-hmm. photo. And, and this was, remember, that was 2009. People weren't uploading everything to Facebook, and that was still in the infancy of Facebook, and most people weren't on it and uploading. It was hard from a flip phone to upload photos to it, if, if you remember yes. what it was like back then. Anyway, yes, I do. He, on the stand, he repeatedly denied having a sexual relationship with McIntyre, saying he met her through friends when he was in high school. McIntyre's testimony came near the end of the trial and was probably the salacious highlight for most people. McIntyre, 31, of South Gardner, testified in Bellavance's defense. She said that she and Bellavance had a brief, exclusive relationship several years before, and he knew while she was working at the coffee shop that she'd been, quote-unquote, dating other people, and they remained friends. He didn't care who I hung out with, she said. She also said she never heard Bellavance threaten to burn down the coffee shop, despite the testimony from those at the barbecue that he said it right in front of her at least twice. She said that Bellavance did not exhibit controlling behavior and never abused her. She wrote an affidavit to get a restraining order against him after he visited the coffee shop that day in March to get her fired, but she said she did it because the other waitresses pressured her to. 
She said she didn't follow through with getting the order. She testified that she lied in the affidavit for it, which she filled out on March 10th, 2009, when she wrote, I'm scared for my safety. He tells me no one will ever have you. You are mine until I die. She also said Bellavance allowed her to drive his 1992 Crown Victoria back and forth to work, and the two took Bellavance's grandson overnight and then fishing and swimming. Other men were more controlling, she said, including Jason Lunt, who, despite him testifying otherwise, she said she had a sexual relationship with. Quote, He told me not to tell we had sex because I would ruin his marriage, she said. She called Bellavance frequently when he was in jail during the 19 months he was there between his arrest and the trial because of their friends, she said. Quote, I don't think he would do something like that, she said of the arson. Kelly, the DA, objected to that remark, and Judge Murphy ordered it stricken from the record. McIntyre said she worked at the coffee shop beginning February 26, 2009, and she estimated that about 40 waitresses came and went between then and the fire. There were seven waitresses per shift and two shifts a day, she said. It was pretty interesting, she said. We just served coffee and muffins and were paid three fifty an hour plus tips. And, um, hmm, interesting. Yeah, I think it's interesting that she said that, and I think basically someone told her to be sure to say that they exactly. were paid by the hour. Anyway, she said the atmosphere was pretty friendly. People came from Florida, from New York, from all over the United States to have coffee. To which I say... Like you can't get a good cup of coffee in the 3,000 miles between fucking Florida and Maine? Or well, in New York? Vassalboro, Maine? That with boobs. I think it was the tits, right. McIntyre said that Tara Mishu Bellavance, Ray's wife, and Tina Savage, his girlfriend after the fire, both who testified against him, resented her relationship with him. She said she'd had sex with Bellavance, Crabtree, and Lunt in the weeks leading up to the fire. Quote, I wasn't in a relationship with any of these men. She said to the prosecutor, I wasn't around them all the time. So I think what she means is she was just having sex and it wasn't her idea of a relationship. Yeah, well, you know. Yep. McIntyre said she argued frequently with Crabtree, who would then fire her for a few days, then rehire her. She also said she never gave a direct answer when Crabtree asked her to go with him to the planning board meeting the night of the fire. You know, in some ways, she reminds me a little of Helen Jewett in your... Yeah, I was thinking Kind of doing what she had to do to get by. You know, she couldn't even afford to buy a, a you know, like a thousand dollar car. I think she was just pretty pragmatic about her relationships. But I think, as always, the men didn't see it that way. And I think all three of them had issues with her. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, um, Bella Vance and Crabtree all seemed like oh, yeah. they had. So a couple other people testified in Bella Vance's defense besides McIntyre. Amy Perry said Bella Vance showed up at her place in Augusta the night of June 3rd, 2009. So that was, you know, the fire had been that morning and specifically asked her to recall events from the previous night. She said the previous night, June 2nd, after putting her two kids to bed, which usually lasted from 10 p.m. to 11 or 11.30, to which I say, oh my fucking God, kill yes, me now. Yes, it can. I it am can. so fucking glad I don't have kids. It if it can. takes a fucking 90 minutes to put them to bed. Depends on the kids. I know. She Super nanny wouldn't approve, though. No, she wouldn't. After putting her kids to bed, so apparently they're young enough that she has to put them to bed, but she drove Bella Vance home to his daughter's mobile home. So I'm assuming, I don't know if she left the kids alone. That's yeah, not my problem. Yeah, that's weird. But anyway. <laughs> well, I'm just like wondering about her testimony. Yeah, I know. I think it's funny that he showed up at her house the next night to remind her that that had happened. Another witness, Richard Hilliard, said Bella Vance was in a downtown Augusta bar until 12.30 a.m. to 1 a.m. on June 3rd. 
uh, you know, the a.m. of June 3rd, when the fire was being lit, which even contradicts Belavance's story or his other support witnesses' stories. Finally, it was Belavance's turn to testify in his own defense, which you knew... Ah, great idea. He was gonna, because... Narcissist. Yep. He'd been relatively busy, Judy Harrison writes, at the defense table throughout the trial, locating paperwork and CDs for his attorney, taking notes and consulting with Campbell, occasionally pointing out highlighted sections of paper and leaning over to suggest a question. Judge Murphy ruled that the jury could be told Belavance had a 2005 drug conviction, but not about a series of other convictions. Belavance has been convicted of burglary, theft, assault, and aggravated assault, criminal mischief, and terrorizing, among other crimes, between 1979 and 2005, and had spent as much as two years at a time in prison. He testified he considered Krista McIntyre a friend with benefits, and he was not jealous of her relationships with other men. He said they'd hang out together and have occasional casual sex. Quote, I am no motive to do this fire. Somebody's going to burn down someone else's building over jealousy? That's a little outrageous, I think. Bellavance spent almost four hours on the witness stand, his tone confident and blunt, a term he used to characterize himself, Betty wrote. Bellavance said he stayed with friends during the evening before the fire and later tried to hang out with McIntyre at an Augusta bar. He said he saw her and Jason Lunt talking while sitting in opposite vehicles in a parking lot. He said he approached them and asked what was going on. Deputy D.A. Kelly asked if he was upset to see them together after McIntyre told Bellavance she didn't want to be with him that night. He said no. You're not upset, Kelly asked. That's correct, said Bellavance. Kelly then read an interview Bellavance gave to detectives. Where the fuck have you been? You're supposed to be with me, Kelly read from Bellavance's original statement. And again, fuck isn't there, but there's an indication. And I'm like, why not just say it? Since yeah, we're not you have to keep it real. Right. Bellavance said he then walked with a friend to another bar, but didn't enter. He said he later went to his daughter's house, where he typically stayed at night, and he did not set fire at the coffee shop. According to Bellavance, early the next morning, he and three others, one of them Tina Savage, who was driving, and two people he barely knew and couldn't remember their names, were driving past his aunt's house off Route 3 on their way to plant some marijuana in the woods. He said the van they were in got a flat tire. He and one of the men in the van walked to his aunt's house to get a tire iron so he could get the lug nuts off the wheel. His aunt gave him a fresh shirt as his was wet from lying on the ground trying to get the tire off, he said. Now, if you remember his aunt's testimony, she said he told her that his truck went into a pond. So, yes, I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Bellavance said a passerby whose name he didn't know replaced the tire. He said he and the three others went home instead of planting the marijuana. Bellavance said he wouldn't have gotten his shirt wet in a bog, like Mulkern said, because he knew those woods enough from hunting over the years to avoid the bog, adding that there are much easier ways to get through the woods. I know how to get to my aunt's house without getting wet, he said. Although, now this is Maureen, I remember Mulkern said they heard dogs and went into the bog in the water to escape. My guess is thinking, you know, if you're in water, they can't smell you or whatever. But I anyway, see it on TV all the time. I know. Bellavance said he fled Maine and went to New Hampshire in April 2010 after learning he was going to be arrested and charged with arson. And I guess he went from there to South Carolina. I was scared to death, Bellavance said. I was evading the police. That's correct, sir. 
he said he said that to the deputy DA. He also said he has children and grandchildren and worked as a drywaller from age 14 when he dropped out of school in 8th grade. It's funny because he and I would have been in the same grade. So, so, yeah. so I'm like, I wonder if he was in my class in high school. But then I read this and I'm like, no, I guess he wouldn't have been. And if he went to grade school, it was probably St. Augustine rather than St. Mary's. So. If he went to Catholic, yeah. Right. Well, it sounded like they were fairly French, so. He said he comes from a family of boxers, the sport, not the dog, that's me, and has always confronted people face-to-face. I always think it's funny when people build themselves up like that. Campbell asked, did you ever, ever set fire to the Grandview coffee shop? No, I did not, Bellavance responded. Bellavance said investigators tried to trick him into confessing to the crime, by saying that he was working with Marlon Cloutier, a man who had been convicted of multiple counts of arson. He spent most of the rest of his testimony, according to Judy Harrison, trying to discredit other witnesses, saying they were lying to cover themselves. Campbell, the attorney, targeted State Fire Marshal's Office investigator Ken McMaster, who was recalled to the stand. Campbell contended that McMaster uses lying as an interview technique to try to get suspects to confess. Yeah. You could fucking knock me over with a feather. He what? He uses lying? That's, ha <laughs> ha. Campbell asked him, lying is a major part of your investigation technique? No, not major, replied McMaster. Does it become hard to differentiate lying in interviews and lying in court? Campbell asked. Ooh. Kelly objected, and Murphy sustained the objection. Campbell suggested that McMaster pressured witnesses and said that McMaster said that if Bellavance was convicted, Thomas Mulkern would be next in line, and that's how he got Mulkern to testify against Bellavance. McMaster denied ever saying that. McMaster also said in response to Bellavance's testimony that several people Bellavance said he was with the night of the fire could not recall being with him. No matter what side you're on, if they're talking to people months and months after, and these are all people who, most people who seem to have issues with drugs and alcohol, and you're talking to them months and months after something happened, who the hell's going to know? Or remember, unless they remember something specific because of the be fire. I would be to remember, and I don't do drugs at all anymore. Right, right. It'd have to be something specific. Like, for instance, yeah. Tara Mishu Tiramisu. said she remembered, <laughs> said she remembered, like, what night, like, the barbecue and stuff, because her grandmother died on June 1st. So she had the barbecue the day before her grandmother died. And then the next night was when she was picked up for operating without a license and spent the night in jail. And she Hmm. remembers it all because those things all happened in the same few days. And also, I would remember, I think, if somebody said they were going to burn a place down and then three days later it burned down. It's still fresh enough in your mind that it's like, oh, shit, he said. Unless he was always saying stuff like that, then who knows. Right, but even so... He said it and it burned down. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Tina Savage, Bellavance's former girlfriend, the one who dated him after the fire, was asked if she wanted to testify against him, and she said no. When Kelly asked her why not, she said, he threatened to burn my house down and shoot my horse if I testified, which she had already testified to. But she also said she did not begin dating Bella Vance until after the fire and would not have been driving him down the road to plant marijuana plants just after 5 a.m. on June 3rd. 2009. How did these guys get girlfriends? I don't, I don't understand. I just nah. have to say that, uh, you know, I don't know how this whole story strikes listeners, but to me, this is such an Augusta story. <laughs> like, everything about it 
is. And not to put down Augusta, it's our hometown. But anyway, in closing arguments, Kelly said Bellavance was fueled by a combination of anger and jealousy, adding, Raymond Bellavance is a volatile man, quick to anger. On the night of June 2nd, the situation is, Raymond Bellavance has been put off by Krista McIntyre. He has to admit he was losing control. Kelly said Bellavance's arrival at 5 a.m., June 3rd, 2009, at the house of his aunt, Lorette Collock, places him in the vicinity of the fire, even though his DNA was not found on the gas can left at the scene. Defense attorney Campbell, in his closing arguments, called the prosecutor's granting of immunity to Mulkern and Wood the deal of the century. Campbell argued that the state offered barely enough evidence to charge arson and certainly not enough to convict Bellavance. Campbell maintained the state focused on Bellavance as a suspect from the beginning and refused to look elsewhere. Quote, Proximity doesn't make you guilty of a crime, Campbell said. It comes down to credibility. Do you believe Ray or do you believe Mulkern? Campbell described Bellavance as an in-your-face fighter. This ain't a man who goes out by stealth at night to burn down the Grandview, Campbell said. Campbell told the jurors to disregard testimony of numerous inmates who said Bellavance confessed and provided details about the event. Much of the case relies on jailhouse rats, Campbell said. Bellavance never admitted or confessed to anyone about anything. Campbell said Bellavance feared he was being framed, and that's why he fled to South Carolina. And I just want to say, I don't think it's a contradiction for someone who's a, quote, fighter to take a couple cans of gasoline and go burn down a fucking coffee house. I know. It wasn't like it was some subtle, thought-out crime. It was a fucking reaction to being so pissed off he couldn't exactly. see straight because Krista was with Jason Lunt and he was already pissed off about her. Is what exactly. I, I, I think it was building with him. But anyway, shortly before 6 p.m. on December 30th, 2011, Bellavance was found guilty after a 10-day trial and about five hours of deliberation by the jury. He was sentenced to the maximum 30 years on May 10th, 2012. He was also ordered to pay $16,635 in restitution to the Augusta, Vassalboro, and Chelsea Fire Departments. Kelly said Crabtree, the owner who was not present in court for the sentencing, didn't ask for restitution for his destroyed building. Judge Murphy said during the hearing in Kennebec County Superior Court that she imposed the maximum sentence without any time suspended because it was sheer luck that the arson didn't lead to multiple homicide case. Bellavance recklessly endangered a number of persons inside the dwelling and a large number of fire personnel, she said. Among the reasons Murphy cited for issuing the maximum sentence was that the fire was set after midnight, that 10 gallons of gasoline was used as an accelerant, and the fact that Bellavance should have or did know people were living in the building at the time. Quote, this was a serious, dramatic, and then it has like three dots and fire, so I wonder if she said, this was a serious, dramatic fucking fire. I would have said that. Yeah. It was set in a time and a manner that would maximize damage. She also cited Bellavance's extensive criminal history and his record of violating court orders among her reasons for the lengthy sentence. Kelly, the DA, said that Bellavance had seven prior convictions for assault, the first in 1982. Members of Bellavance's family and two officials from Kennebec County Jail testified on his behalf during the sentencing hearing. I've known Ray for a long time, said his uncle, Tony Bellavance. He's a hard worker, and I don't think he should go away for a long time. Kennebec County Jail Director of Education, Thomas Rohrer, said Bellavance can be helped. He would primarily study law books when he was at the jail, said Rohrer. Duh! I know, no shit. There's plenty of potential there worth exploring. Uh, but he's a psychopath. Bellavance did not speak on his own behalf before sentencing. His attorney, Andrews Campbell, 
said the sentence was very harsh and he planned to appeal. Quote, that's a harsher sentence than in cases of murder sometimes, he said outside the courtroom. No person was injured in the fire. He said he planned to appeal because the case revolved around mostly indirect evidence and the testimony of Thomas Mulkern, who has a criminal history of his own. The defense attorney said he thought the jury's decision was rushed. Quote, the jury had to be home by New Year's Eve and gave a verdict of guilty and didn't want to hang around past New Year's Eve, he said. Campbell said that because of the long sentence, Bellavance would never get the opportunity to pay the restitution. And the DA, Kelly, just said he was happy with the sentence. He was satisfied. As he would. What else is he going to say? In April 2013, the Maine Supreme Judicial Court denied Bellavance's appeal. Campbell argued that Bellavance deserved a new trial because it was impossible to seat an impartial jury because of pretrial publicity. The judge placed undue pressure on defense witnesses to invoke their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. As I said, I think there are a bunch of witnesses who um, got up there and then wouldn't testify, and it just wasn't in the news stories I found, but I kind of remember it from the time, too. And immunity was granted improperly to a defendant. He means Mulkern there. And the defense was not given enough time to adequately prepare when the witness Mulkern decided to testify against rather than for Bellavance. And he also brought up that the jury was pressured to come to a decision because the next day was New Year's Eve. Kennebec County District Attorney Megan Maloney said Bellavance received a fair trial and that Murphy properly conducted the proceedings. In 2016, Bellavance filed for a new trial under post-conviction review. By now, he was represented by Vernie Parody Jr. and Patrick Nickerson. They claimed that Andrews Campbell had made mistakes at the trial. They had the same complaint Campbell did about Mulkern, who was listed as a defense witness, but then ended up testifying for the prosecution, and the fact that Mulkern was promised immunity from prosecution for his part in the fire. A Kennebec County Superior judge denied him a new trial in February 2017. Meanwhile, Crabtree tried to keep the business open in a trailer on the site. In May 2011, after it being open and closed sporadically, he was told by Vassalboro officials his new signs were too big, violating local ordinances. He closed for good then, and he sold the property, and it's now a self-storage um, place. He moved from the area. He moved from the area, and by 2012 was living in Greenbush, which I said earlier is on the Penobscot River up north of Bangor, a good two hours from Vassalboro. He told Alex Barber of the Bangor Daily News in May 2012 it would cost around $750,000 to replace what was destroyed by the arson that night. He said he lost equipment. He had accumulated over 19 years of carpentry, lobster crates, and scales from his wholesale lobster business, and furniture from a large home he had recently sold in Ellsworth before he moved to Vassalboro, to which Maureen said, get some fucking insurance. I mean, it's too late now, but... Yes, well, I hope he learned his lesson. Yeah, I know. He said he'd planned on reading a letter he wrote during the sentencing, but changed his mind. Quote, I was supposed to go to court and read that, but I just get so mad. I think it could have been investigated a little better. The trial and investigation was an awful experience. I don't wish that upon anybody. He's also not convinced that Bellavance is the one who set the fire. He said that after that March 2009 confrontation, when Bellavance wanted him to fire McIntyre, they shook hands, and he never bothered me again, said Crabtree. I saw him in town, saw him at bars. He was fine. He didn't say anything to me. Why would he come back three months later, you know, to burn the place down? And I just want to say that Crabtree told both the newspaper when Bellavance was arrested and said on the stand that the only time he ever saw or talked to Bellavance 
was that day in March 2009. I know. It's so weird that he's like... I know. Well, I think he's just found other people to blame since it happened. I think he has a lot of grievances himself, you know. And frankly, I can think of a lot of reasons that he would come back and burn down the, the place. Namely, that he was obsessed with Krista seeing other guys and felt like that place was the epicenter for it. That she was having exactly. a physical relationship with Crabtree, even if they only slept together three times, like Crabtree said. And also... No, that, they weren't having a physical relationship. Right, right. They, but they he only did had, have sex with her. You know, Crabtree, like, gave her money for a car, and and it was hiring and firing her, knowing she was desperate for work. So he had a lot of control over her. Anyway, Crabtree repeats one of the big fallacies that I heard so many other repeat, too. Raise a fighter. And then he says, if he had a problem, he would have said something within those three months. Three hours after that meeting, he means the planning board meeting, she's on fire. I believe it was somebody in the town that did it. And as I said earlier, I think a fighter is exactly the kind of person who'd do what Bella Vance was convicted of doing. Crabtree said similar things to Betty Adams in January 2012, right after the trial. What bothers me the most is that three hours after a strip club meeting, there was a fire. What I'm going to do is go away wondering whether they got the right person or not. I've got no closure for sure. And that, my friends, is the story of the Grandview topless cottage. And frankly, and I know the evidence seemed kind of weak in that there was no forensic evidence. And I'm wondering, too, if they'd looked around more, like maybe they could have found that sweatshirt Mulkern lost or the Twisted Tea can, but I'm sure there was a lot of trash around. But I think it makes sense. I mean, it making sense isn't necessarily evidence, but just as far as the storytelling and you and me talking, like, I'm not saying, gee, I wonder if Ray Bellavance really did do it, or did the jury make a mistake, or did the investigators make a mistake? You know, I think people, as we talk about so many times, misunderstand what control is. And it's not, oh, he's jealous because she's having sex. But he's wants to control how she acts and what she's doing. And there's other men, like Crabtree, controlling her, and that causes a conflict. And his reaction is to get rid of the source of the conflict by burning the place down because he's fucking pissed off. And I don't think he gave a shit. Like, I don't think it occurred to him people would get hurt. I don't think he was trying to hurt anybody, but like a true psychopath, I don't think he gave a shit yeah, whether anybody exactly. got hurt. Like that Mark Hoffman guy when he did the bombs. Right. Uh, the whatever episode that was recently. It was something beyond that. People were just... The people didn't matter. Yeah, they know. didn't matter. It could, because people like that are not used to thinking about the feelings of other people or or how their actions affect other people. So it doesn't occur to them when they do something like that to say, oh, but I could hurt somebody. Well, that's the thing that bothered me about when it happened was whoever did it. And it, it, at the time, that was a kind of a mystery yes. for a while yes. who did it. They could have killed like six people, like a baby. And, and I don't know but, that he you know. necessarily knew that there were babies, but you shouldn't have to know that. No. You know, and I think Crabtree, and I'm just taking this from like the testimony and stuff, got so balled up and who knows what was going on with him. But in the, you know, people, when these little details bother them and they can't see the big picture like about the ambulance crew 
you know, not doing this or doing that and stuff. Instead of being pissed off at Bella Vance, he was just pissed off in general. Almost that the investigation and stuff is what wrecked his life because all this stuff came out. You know, the people who who don't want that kind of business in town, their concerns about it. I'm not saying they were true, and somebody different than Donald Crabtree might run it differently, but when you look at the the drug and sex connections, and it just didn't attract, you know, an element, and it ended up with a fire that could have hurt not only people in there, but anytime fire personnel, especially volunteer personnel, go to a fire and stuff, they're putting their lives in danger too. Exactly. One thing too that I would I would love somebody to write a book about this and actually go you deeper can. into it. Uh, uh, so much work. They knew like that Drisco guy who called them the day after the fire to say Bellavant said he was gonna do this. And yeah. and Tara Michu Bellavant's saying he erased that he was going to do this and i'm not saying they had to arrest him right then but if it were me and i don't know what they did i would have started looking way more closely around there for evidence like if mulkern and i i think mulkern in general is telling the truth i think he may have exaggerated like the whole knife thing bellevant's holding a knife to him and Maybe oh yeah, I know. Tooth. I know. I remember at the time I didn't believe right. that. But knife I think in, story. But, right, but I think in general, him going there, then it, you know, Ray burning the place down, then Ray realizing he didn't have a cell phone. That's the kind of stuff that rings true. And them going through the woods rings true. And losing the sweatshirt rings true. I'm wondering if better forensic evidence could have been found, even if they were yes. focused on Bella Vance. The knife, I thought, was a bit uh, embellished at the time. I did believe that Mulkern guy when he said he didn't think people were in the building. I think Ray didn't care whether right. they were there or not, right. and maybe was hoping that Crabtree yeah. was in. And it shows like the difference between, for instance, Mulkern and Bella Vance. Like, I think Mulkern's a very sad case of someone with a bad drug problem. And I think, frankly, whatever reason he had for testifying against Bella Vance, I think his story in general was true. And Ray's is so full of contradictions. Like, no, I remember at the time... Uh, so you're going to drive at 5 in the morning to plant marijuana in Vassalboro yeah. with two guys that you don't know and a woman who you're not dating yet, you know, who says, no, I never did that. He probably thought because he was dating or she'd lie for him. Well, they only dated for eight months, so by the trial, they weren't dating anymore. He didn't seem to keep uh, chicks around. But also, too, his different stories about what he did that night didn't all add up. And um, So anyway, but that is the story of the Grandview Coffee Shop. Thank (laughs) you. So we're doing one of our rare duo dual NNW ratings. Yeah. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. So we're doing an American tragedy. Yes. The Chris I, I can't remember what the rest the of family it. next door right, or murder. Right. So what is it at Netflix at the It's on Netflix. Yeah, okay. Yes. And for those of you not familiar, it's about the Chris Watts family annihilation. He killed his wife and two little girls. And I can't remember the name of the filmmaker, which I guess is something we should have, but she's a British woman. So should we just get to it? Yes. Okay, reenactments. There are Bad (laughs) reenactments. Yeah, bad reenactments. There are no reenactments at all. Thank God, no reenactments. 
So the next... Narrative cliches, I will say none. I would agree because there's no narrator. And I guess we could talk now, although we'll get to it. It's completely strung together with Facebook videos, interrogation room videos, text, uh, police body cam. Body cam. And also the doorbell. Uh, It begins with the doorbell video. Actually, it begins with a FaceTime video of her with her kids and stuff. Shanann Watts, the murdered woman, is somebody who lived on FaceTime and Facebook video and stuff. But Well, part of it was her job was some kind of a multi-level marketing thing. Right. Lack of good visuals. I'd give it a point for visuals yes it's all about the visuals and even like texts and stuff it does the thing with the text that a lot of other i won't things are doing now the visuals are really good i mean right yeah, it's all about the it's yes, all about the it's visuals. all about the visuals okay like, so this is a missing pieces i'm gonna take a point away me too Ooh. You go first. Okay. The reason I am is I was already pretty familiar with this case. I'd listened to at least two podcasts about it, and I probably saw a dateline or something. That, and of course, it's been in the news. So I, you know, I don't know all about it, but I'm very familiar with it. I feel like if you're not familiar with the case, that you might have questions after watching this. Yes. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do. Do you have anything specific? Well, no, I can't think of anything specific, and it's one of those things, like I've said on things before, if you are already familiar with it, it's hard to to right. know what you're filling in. I feel like there were there was a lot of stuff that might have needed to be explained to people. That yes, but I again I can't say for right. sure the, because well, I already knew stuff. Right. So and, and the filmmaker was interviewed on Real Crime Profile, I think two episodes, and and she did talk about how she purposely left some stuff out just because she felt it was his gratuitous stuff and she didn't want to. I get that. So I get that. But some things. I felt needed to be filled were things maybe she didn't have the video or whatever to film. Yes, but like exactly. at, the, at the very beginning, it showed Shanann talking on Facebook near the beginning about how when she was 25, she built her first house yes. all by herself and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what does she mean by that? I don't think she literally built a house. And was she flipping houses? It Was she, yeah. did she have a construction company? Did she, you know, I wanted to know more about that. And it's not like that was even part of the I know narrative. That, yeah. And it did show that she was go-getter and stuff, but I felt like it needed more. <laughs> I'm like, what What does it mean? Why did she, why is she building houses and now she's selling a nutritional supplement. Another type of missing piece I found was that, you know, and I think anyone familiar with this case knows that she took a lot of unwarranted criticism and still does, yes. particularly like for being bossy. And I'm like, okay, she's quote unquote bossy. He kills his wife and kids. I know. Um, who's the worst person? And I know the filmmaker tried to temper that and tried to put that in perspective, but I think it needed to be done more more strongly because there's definitely an issue you know the guys who are that like passive and you know and the woman talks a lot and is more okay we're gonna do this and we're gonna do this and we're gonna do it my way blah 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 the guy's actually controlling that you know what i mean i know and he makes the other thing is unless the guy is overly controlling a guy could have done the same things 
Yes. And nobody would have been like, when you have someone in your, in your life who's very passive, like he was, the word would be lazy. Yes. Or self-involved. Um, because they just don't feel like... Right. Yeah, they don't feel like doing anything or making any decisions themselves, so let somebody else do it. And then that other person has the responsibility, too. Right. You don't have to do anything. You just uh, go with the flow. Right. But then when, you, when he didn't want to do it her way anymore, he just got rid of her. But what I'm saying as far as missing pieces goes is I think the filmmaker did do a good job of showing, building up, and we'll get to that in storytelling, but kind of showing kind of what a a dick he was to her. Yes, exactly. But but I do think that it would have helped to, I I, and I know it's very difficult, especially to do this kind of film where you're taking all these things. And also like the fact that his parents didn't go to their wedding. And then he's telling the cops, well, they they didn't like her, I guess. And I wish that there had been somewhere more information about that because frankly you're in a family you have a child or a sibling or someone who marries somebody that you don't particularly like you go to the fucking wedding i know normal people do that you know what i mean i can't imagine not going yeah i can't imagine i think that speaks to his issues in a way why he's the way he is but it also demonizes her in a way Mm. that she doesn't deserve. It's not no. her fault they didn't go to the wedding. She's not such an awful person. She seems like a very nice person that they don't go yeah. to the wedding. And I felt like that needed more perspective. But again, it's hard yes. to do in a but anyway. Exactly. Okay. And by the way, so can I just that- say about the can I just say about the wedding? Open mouth kissing. Yes. When when the priest says you may kiss the bride, it's great. He's like eating in her fucking face, and also he's chewing gum in the wedding video. Spit out your fucking gum, people. Anyway, I don't understand that. Um, Okay, inaccuracies, anachronisms. I didn't find any. It's hard to have them when you're using all the. Um, archival footage right footage of stuff that's actually happening you know you don't have anybody's take on something it's stuff that's really happening so so storytelling i'm not taking anything off no what i really liked is it it wasn't just a linear thing they interspersed Mm -hmm. first the cops at the crime scene all wore their body cams like good little policemen and then in interrogation footage of chris watts and stuff intersperse that with exactly the face with what led up to the the weeks leading up to that i can't remember if i've seen anything a documentary exactly like this one where it was all it is but it's done in an artful way it's not like they just strung together a bunch of no i mean it's done like you said it's a story they're building a story with what they're using and it was just very there's so much reality tv on today that you're used to seeing this like cinema verite type of thing that you have to stop and think this all this stuff nobody it's not scripted it's not scripted it's even like shows cops and stuff i know a lot of that that is is, yeah Right, it's for the cameras. And this was just genuine. And some of it was so good, too. And there will probably be some spoilers as we're talking here, but people are familiar with this anyway. But, like, the next-door neighbor has a surveillance camera. It just shows how stupid Chris Watts was. Just the whole tension of that scene. He's got his back. First of all, if your wife and kids... That was very tense. Right, if your wife and kids are missing, you're not going to have your back to the possible surveillance 
footage that's going to show what happened. No. And he has his back to it. And then I love it when the when the and guy he's says so weird. I know. And the guy says to the cop, "He something's wrong here. He doesn't usually act like that." But of course, the cop kind of blows it off because he's a moron. But stuff like that. It's great that there are actually people in it doing the job of a narrator. And also, I'm always struck in all these things, and this one shows the contrast really well, but like on Dateline and stuff too, by how genuinely distraught friends and family are. Yeah, I know. And then you compare it to the husband of the missing woman who's like, oh, Oh. the cop hands him the business card and Chris goes, sweet, who says that? Freshness. I think that goes along with what we were just saying. The way it's told. Yes. I was really amazed. One thing I want to say about freshness, too. When I first saw it, I'm like, oh, geez, another thing about the Watts family. Because I've listened to a couple, like you, a couple podcasts. I've seen stuff on TV. I've read about it. Given all that, the way it was told was very fresh. It was, you know, different and it really worked. So repetition. I'm not taking off any points. They do use repetition, but they do it as a way of enhancing the story. Like they'll show a clip of something later that they showed at the beginning, but you have more perspective. So I think they use it to an advantage and I, I will not obviously not taking right, points. Yeah, I'm not off taking for points it. off for that. Like the whole thing starts like a Facebook video of her talking about her family and her kids and her husband and blah blah blah. And especially if you weren't familiar. So if you're watching it like that, you see that and it's like, oh, isn't this a sweet family? And then you see some of the footage from that later. You just look at it differently. So it works that way. And then like there's a video of, I think it's the weekend. It was right before maybe the day he killed them when he's playing with the daughters yes. and stuff and it's just oh oh i know you know just seeing that you'd think oh what nice you know what a great what dad, a great dad. You know, loves his daughters and oh okay beating the drum i'm not taking off any for that me neither i think she does a good job of the story is there yeah. there's no no drum beating whatsoever <laughs> yeah. so what i wanted to say about it the body cam footage you know there's all this discussion about whether or not cops should wear body cams what this showed me about body cams that i hadn't really thought about was it's not just showing it's not just there to protect people it can be an investigative tool too the body cam footage can be evidence i mean it can yeah. it can help them with the investigation it, it catches showing things. his reactions and right. stuff and the guys just saying off the cuff oh he never acts like that if later if the cop had had talked to that neighbor the neighbor might not have remembered right. that chris acted that weird or something but like right at the moment he's noticing it so right I and even if the cop something that isn't talked about much right and even so. if the cop isn't noticing it you show that to a jury yeah and i also thought that the use of the interrogation room when stuff, his father comes in and the, it's like oh god yeah but get a lawyer, not your father. Unless I know. your father's a lawyer. And even I then, know. don't get him. And he wasn't. I know. But people don't get lawyers, whether they're guilty or innocent. They... Who would you call if you got... Would you call Billy? We could call Matt. I would call Matt's... Matt Nichols. I would call Matt because <laughs> he's a criminal defense lawyer. <laughs> yeah. And he's our friend. Yeah, no, I wouldn't call Billy. He'd, he'd be... He'd, he'd be like... He'd probably be like, call Matt. What do you call me for? But one thing I want to say, and this isn't like a missing piece or anything, but this is just one major thought I had before this documentary, and then I definitely thought of watching it. But, you know, the whole question, was it premeditated or not? I don't think he Uh necessarily planned it out, but I think that that five weeks they were gone... 
and mm-hmm. he was alone and he was with his girlfriend every night and day. It made him realize what his life would be like without the minute. You know what I mean? And it, when people say, of course, oh, why didn't he just get a divorce? And we've talked about this before. He doesn't want a divorce. He doesn't want them there anymore. He wants a new life. He, he wants, wants a different a new life. life. I don't know that he necessarily said, I am going to kill my family tonight. Ugh. But I think it was somewhere in his head that he mm-hmm. didn't want them around and he might do something. Obviously, he's the world's stupidest criminal. He didn't really <laughs> think it out, but I don't think that, that that him not thinking it out is necessarily an indication he well, I didn't that, intend uh, yeah. no let me that he didn't intend to do it i think him not thinking it out just shows he's narcissistic and doesn't watch true crime and doesn't realize that the cops are going to wonder why her fucking phone is still there because people don't abduct a woman and two toddlers there's no upside to to that kind of abduction yeah well no i was gonna say he's he's narcissistic but he's also dumb right so those two don't go along very well if you go (laughs) i don't think he planned it out meticulously but i think he had a a little thing in his head about what he could do he probably thought about gee what would i do if i could get rid of them and where would i put them and blah 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 i find it interesting the similarities to the jeffrey Mm -hmm. mcdonald case except chris got rid of the bodies the wife is pregnant and they have two little girls i also find it the similarities interesting to Josh Powell, even though Josh yes. Powell didn't kill his kids. Well, he did kill his kids, but much later. I kept kind of getting it confused a little because the houses yes. are kind of the same and the yes, exactly. wives are kind of the same and the husbands are kind of the same in some ways. And um, But I do think that, it, like yeah. people say, like the whole thing with the receipt from the bar, well, he wanted her to find mm. out this. No, I think he just was like, he didn't give a shit. You know, yeah. he... I think know. he knew that she was... He was eventually going to get rid of her, so he didn't care. I think that's what it was. I think he... I mm-hmm. think he had it in his head he was going to do it. I just don't think he... I think he was thinking, I'm going to do it. There's right. probably one I, of the things that I'm going to do it. And I just had to figure it yeah. out. But also the fact that he volunteered, it's talked about with his boss, how he volunteered to go to that Survey Ranch on Monday morning. Oh, yeah. You know, he volunteered, yeah. like, whenever, the weekend before or whatever, to go to that... Which he normally wouldn't have done. Yeah. And his boss noted that he volunteered to go out there. So you almost wonder, okay, is he thinking that? But as as we all know, we're never really going to know because he just lies all the time. And And anyone that's buying it. (laughs) But also, too, like when she was in North Carolina and she'd be angry and texting him and his text back would... Oh, I'm I'm sorry, honey. Oh, blah blah blah. I know that's so but, weird. Well, here, well, here's my take. It's it's just all bullshit. It's phony yeah. shit. He's telling her what she wants to hear. Exactly. And and but people see that and they take it at face value and they say, oh look how bitchy she's being when he's so nice. He's I know. he's not being nice. He's not addressing the issues. I know. He, he isn't. doesn't kiss her and hug her and tell uh, her he I missed know. her. You know, but he says, like, the thing with his parents, when his mother had the ice cream that the kid's allergic to, he's like, oh, that's so wrong, blah, blah, blah. But you know he's not going to fucking say anything to his parents about it. I know, he won't say anything. And frankly, frankly, too, that tells me that, and people are, like, that's some indication that Shanann's a bitch because she got so pissed off. I can't imagine if one of our nieces or nephews or your daughter or somebody had allergies Mom deliberately getting food that the kid's allergic to. I know, especially those kind of allergies, life-threatening if you eat it. 
Right, you know? and my feeling is it's a passive-aggressive thing. The mother-in-law yeah. thinks Shanann's a bitch. Shanann has this dramatic thing. Oh, Cece has allergies. Well, I'm going to get Cece this ice cream because I don't think it's that big a deal. And it, fuck Shanann. Exactly. You know. And that's how Chris was, though. He's right. a, a passive-aggressive bullshit. Right. Oh, so I gave it a nine. And Me I think too. And gave it a nine. Me too. And I would say anyone definitely don't think that you already, oh, I already saw, you know, right. or listened to a podcast, especially if you know about it, you'd really like this because it's a really good supplement to anything you've seen but if you watched it and and were interested in it i would seek out other things that have a little bit more detail yes in them maybe yes i would i would say that i watched it twice and yes. the second time actually caught things i hadn't caught so i think it was very good and i it's think the way it was done yes. it's so hard to believe that all that is real that, that this isn't some kind of film made to look right. like it's put together so expertly and, and i'm also glad that at the very end they had the word stuff that had some of the stats about men who kill their wives yes. or girlfriends and family annihilators. And it didn't have that bogus that we've talked about before, you know. Yeah, yeah, one out of three women and one out of four men are an abusive because, as we talked about, those are apples and oranges. And it's funny, you think about it, and, okay, his case, there's a lot of different reasons why their case so was so famous since others aren't. But, like, look, just in Maine, it happens, how many yep. we've talked about. I mean, yes. It happened, and, 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 and we don't have a lot of murders here. Right, and, and I it, would say one reason to watch this is not you're going to learn everything about the murder of Shanann Watts and her children, but is more to see how a family annihilation can play out. Exactly. You know, the, you're the, not going to see some crazed, you know, right. drooling, drunken, you know, which that can happen too, but... But I remember when she first disappeared and he was on the news. It must have been on... It must have seen on cable somewhere. And I remember texting you at the time saying, I bet you that guy killed his wife. Yeah. You know. Okay, yeah. I've, got the, I've got the title. It's American Murder, The Family Next Door. And it's on Netflix. And the director is Jenny Popplewell. I will say, too, just the amount of video of those little girls... And it just makes it so horrific that that guy killed those kids. I'm not saying they're any cuter or anything than any other kids, but I think, you know, you can read about it in uh, Family Annihilation in the paper or anything. But when you see like 90 minutes of these cute little kids who are like a lot of cute little kids Ugh. who are killed, it makes you realize Ugh. what the fuck this guy did. Again, just like Jeffrey McDonald. Yep, with his pregnant wife. I mean, he's stabbed. And I'm sorry, and that's another missing piece that I felt was almost a little misleading on this, that he was not happy that she was pregnant. You know, I know from oh, no. seeing and hearing other things, and this showed no indication of that. But, but anyway, we should probably wrap this up. Yes. Next episode, it's your turn, but it will be I our know. fourth anniversary. I know, and we we, were, we we couldn't think of anything special to do, so so we'll eat cake while we're recording Ugh. or something. No, please don't but, do that. But can you believe we've been doing it for four years? No, I know. I, know. Mm. I remember when. It was, we went to Crime Bake. Yeah. I had been bugging you before, and then we started. Yeah. And the rest is history. The rest is history. That's right. We're as well known in podcasting as Amelia Earhart. (laughs) That's right. Okay, well, okay, thank you, everybody. I know, me too. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
Oh, sorry. It just started. Hi, I was, when I went to, oh. sorry. Hi, Bill. Ah. Hi. Khabibi started it up. I went to, um, I was looking it up and I had the iPhone laying on the bed face up on Netflix and Khabibi stepped on it. Very enthusiastic. Okay. Yeah, it keeps. One of my bosses told me that that was a problem. What? That, that you're not enthusiastic. Tell him to go fuck himself. See if that's a problem. Yes. Yeah. It was a woman. Tell her to go fuck herself and see if that's a problem.